Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to the Business of You. Today, I welcome Dr. Kyle Flanagan to the Business of You. Dr. Flanagan is the co-founder and CEO of a company called U.S. Specialty Formulations. U.S. Specialty Formulations is a boutique pharmaceutical solution company for healthcare, diagnostic, and new drug inventors so that they may help to make the world more comfortable to live in. They work with companies from method analysis to CGMP commercial formulation, and their USSF guides you seamlessly through every single phase of product development to bring your product to the market successfully. So Boutique Pharma, very interesting space these days. It's a small company, but again, what you're going to hear today tuning into Dr. Kyle Flanagan is the behind the scenes process of not only creating his company, but the process of working with other companies to create various pharmaceutical products. And one of the innovative products they are working on is an oral version of the COVID-19 vaccine, which is made completely different than any of the other vaccines on the market. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You with Dr. Kyle Flanagan. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Kyle. How are you today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. We had a nice long chat before we even hit the record button, so I'm eager to dive into more of your your personal story. Um, would love to hear about where you grew up and what inspired you to to start the company that you started. And I'm sure there's that's a long journey, right? That's a long period of time. Um, so you know, sh- share the ups and downs as as much as you like. We love to hear about it. Cool. Um, all right. I'll start with just where I am now. So obviously, uh, Dr. Kyle Flanagan, a PhD in material science, um, uh, master's in material science and uh, bachelor's in chemistry uh, from, uh, let's see, Howard University. And then the P, the doctoral advanced work was from University of Washington in Seattle. We grew up, I grew up out of uh I would say fairly middle class African American family. Both my uh, parents were scientists. Uh, one worked for a very, actually both at some point worked for a large uh, uh, pharmaceutical company. So that was kind of what I thought was interesting originally. I have always wanted to um, pursue kind of um, space science, just just voraciously looking at anything at aviation or or going into space and exploring. I love building things, exploring, putting things together, seeing new stuff. So graduated high school, went to uh, Howard University in Washington, D.C., uh, and then finished that up, uh, went to University of Washington. 
from there, I did a, between those, I did a couple of different internships. So uh, Hoffman LaRoche, Craft uh, Journal Foods, um, again, looking at the, just getting a background in, in chemistry, um, science, and, and how to think and around the people, uh, you know, the leaders in those companies and, and how they saw things and how corporate science, science worked. Um, to University of Washington, um, part of that recruitment there was um, Intel. I worked for Intel uh, Corporation, uh, and they were looking at a um, an astronaut program. So I was uh, being kind of brought in to kind of compete for positions on that on that team. Um, unfortunately, there you know were uh, a disaster, and uh, that program got canceled because of the risk. Um, so I went into the fab fab operations and that was just amazing uh, kind of step up from, you know, the theoretical science that I'd been doing, um, you know, still associated with with practical research, but the theoretical science and lab work in, in, into an industrial uh, lab work. So there I was working on photoresists and and etchants and, you know, plasma chemistries and things like that um, and work got to work with uh global companies all over the world. So I got to travel the world and see the 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 back backroom technology that most customers would never see on how, you know, these suppliers to semiconductor create and design um the different products that that the semiconductor companies use like Intel, Samsung, those guys. So it's just awesome. Learned a lot of stuff. Um from there I went um so there I was a lithography engineer. So, and then in fab materials operations. So that's where you get to do the development and you get to see a lot of, a lot more stuff and work with uh, company, the companies on developing these technologies and, and then ramping them to a commercial scale um, so that they can be used uh, reliably. Uh, and from there, I left Intel and went into Honeywell. Um, and again, in their uh, advanced materials uh, kind of, kind of uh, business. Uh, and started stepping more onto the business side of things. So a lot more interaction, looking at things commercially. Um, and again, on the supplier side, it's a little bit different than just demanding what you want because you're the largest semiconductor company. Now it's, it's, I'm on the supplier side having to, and, you know, as a, as a, as a businessman looking at what the customer wants, what it's going to cost, what the benefits are, how do I manage the resources associated with that? So it was a lot, you know, still really interesting. And I also got to interact with the rest of with the rest of Honeywell a little bit, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, sorry about that. So um, and then went into actually from there, I went into Malincrod Baker again into the electronic materials side. But this time more, you know, with my feet more um, less in the technical side, more in the business side. And what I found myself, what I found myself develop what I found developing and an and interesting skill set. There are not a lot of people with this skill set out there is the ability to have one foot on the and to do a deep dive on the technical aspect of something and look at the applications and actually make the comments of, hey, you could use this for this of this because it has these properties and we can go through and list them all off. And at the same time thinking as the businessman, how is this going to fit into my portfolio? What is this going to do to my resources? What sorts of commitments am I going to make at the time scale this is going to take, the resources it's going to take? And a lot of technical people don't 
ever develop that skill. And a lot of the business side never actually develops a technical skill. So there's, you know, kind of kind of found myself in, in the rare, that rare capability of, of those things. Um, and then from Mallinckrodt Baker, um, they went through a couple of, of acquisitions, we'll say mergers and acquisitions, and found an opportunity, found myself with an opportunity to start up with my co-founder, a um, a facility, uh, not a facility, but a, a new business. There was a new class of manufacturing companies that was out there. And as I mentioned, you know, previously, we started USSF up to provide clinical materials for another project that we were working on. But again, as the business is, as you're thinking about that, is the business needs more than one thing to really be viable. So how do we, what else can this, can this, this business that we created, what else can it do? And, you know, we're now a pharmaceutical, a small boutique pharmaceutical manufacturing company. Um, we provide, you know, our branded products, injectables. We provide investigational drugs, um, or, you know, injectables, topicals. And we also provide uh, services for vaccines. So fermentation, purification, uh, formulation, and fill, injectables again, or oral, in our, as in our case, our oral vaccine. Um, so with that, it's been a fairly long process, I think, because I've worked in, I have a wide breadth of industries, uh, industry and, 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 um, interests, it, you know, it makes me dangerous across a wide range of topics, <laughs> but, but, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it served well, uh, and, and our ability or my ability, one of the things I pride, pride myself on is the ability when we're talking to new customers or pretty much anywhere out there, I can, it, I actually find other people's stuff interesting too, right? Not just my stuff. So, and I can talk with them about it. And that, and that I think is important um, just to establishing, you know, long-term relationship with customers, but even just seeing what's new and interesting out there. Mm. What made you um, kind of shift into the pharmaceutical industry? Because it seems like all your past work experience is more on the manufacturing side. So I've always wanted... You know, from the beginning, I've always wanted to say, okay, how do we kind of, I've always wanted to help people. I like, you know, there's exploring, but there's also helping people. I've always wanted to make sure those around me are are comfortable, are happy, are satisfied. It's, I don't know, that's probably an innate thing. But um, when this opportunity, when my co-founder and I were discussing things, what what we wanted to do next, I looked at it and said, hey, the when you look at a the the two types of industries are not that different. One is more heavily regulated than the other, but when you look at how things are manufactured, the attention to detail required in order to produce a, a safe and a safe and effective product, the two are pretty much spot on. Um, so you can use one skill set in the other. The other, and also because of the nature of kind of my career path, right? It's really more and more heavily involved in project management and and the attention to detail. So it's not necessarily that you have to know everything, but you have to know the who and where to find the information you need so that you can apply it to whatever whatever it is you're doing. So looking that way, you know, my co-founder and I were able to um to set the business up, get it up and going, and where normally it would have taken a lot of consultants and 
a lot of money. We could do most of it ourselves because we had the experience, we had the know-how, the knowledge, and had done it. I mean, except we built our first clean room, so that was we're not quite construction people, <laughs> but it was it was it was functional. It worked. And um, it did what it was I bet to. it was a good experience, a good bonding for sure. It was. How did you and your co-founder connect? Was did you work together in your last role or? No, it was kind of funny. Um, it was through our daughter's gymnastics. So they were all on competitive teams. He's got two twins. I've got two daughters. And so in gymnastics events, you sit there. I don't know if you didn't, if you have kids in gymnastics or friends, but you know, you sit there for, for hours and then you've got the 15 seconds of terror when they're on the beam or the bars, right? And you're just watching that. Um, so in those in-between worrying times, we would sit there and talk about, you know, our different experiences and and what we would do differently. And working for corporate, we realized there's a lot of stuff we would do a lot differently were we able to make to to be in control and have it, you know, have things done the right way. So we said, you know what? We have this opportunity. Let's just take it. We know what to do. We know how to do it. We know we can do this. And so we went with it. We spent probably all of 2012 um, just doing kind of researching and getting the background plan kind of up and going. Uh, in 2013, we founded the business. And by 2014, we had our first, you know, our first batch that was ready to be released. Um, and then 2015, we shipped our first product. So it was it was pretty cool once we 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 decided. Um, but yeah, really it was we have we both have the experience, the knowledge, uh, and and really the biggest component of that is the confidence, right? There's something nice, there's something nice and comfy about working for a large company where some would argue this, but no matter how badly you screw up, you were still going to get a paycheck because of the nature of many corporations. Um, where when you're for working for yourself, those kind that kind of person and those people are confident enough in their own skills and ability to be able to risk, you know, their happiness, right? Right? Your 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 food, your insurance, your kids' college, all that stuff is riding on your shoulders much more so than working for a large company. And I think, you know, Gary and I both said, hey, we can do this. And, you know, that was uh, 10 years ago. So we've we've obviously we obviously know a little bit about how to survive. <laughs> yeah, no, 10 years. Days. I mean, you're kind of over the hump, really. You know, I think right. most businesses go out of business in the first year. And then I think three years in is the next the next drop. Um, in 2012, you said you were both researching and essentially coming up with the plan. Were you both still employed at your other employers? I don't recall. It was like right at the end of, I want to say it was like right at the end of 2012. I've always, I've always thought about, you know, I'm always observing and, you know, through all my career, I was always thinking, how could I operate this? How could I do this better? This is a good system that, you know, this is, you know, if you look at Honeywell or, you know, it's, it's a very old company, right? So their systems have been around forever, but most like anything, anything can use improvement. So how would I do this better? You know, when I was at Intel, Intel, you know, we always had a, um, which was ingrained in me was, you know, continuous improvement. How do we do this better? And so that is that kind of core training 
you know, has followed followed me through things. How can I do this better? If I was going to do this, what would it look like? And what would be the plan? So that's always kind of been going on, you know, since high school, for me, since high school, and it was refined, you know, in my first jobs. Um, and for Gary and I, you know, we've just been sitting there. I think he founded his other company a long time ago, you know, long time ago. So he was all, already, when I met him, uh, knew what, in his mind, what uh, kind of the this space, what was required and kind of what the what what we would be supplying to the industry. For me, it was, you know, you have to get your mind around when you get into pharmaceuticals, as we were discussing earlier, the numbers get big very fast. And that's something I'm not I wasn't used to and had to wrap my brain around. And also, I would say most people aren't used to just how large the numbers get. Um as quickly as they do when you're talking about a growth or a ramp or something like that, the numbers just get large, very fast. Uh, I mean, you see that that's why pharma's big pharma is big pharma. Um, so, so yeah, the, so yeah, we researched it. Um, really it was, it was towards the end. Um, as we're putting together a business plan to do the final thing, checking the numbers, you know, looking back at the models and things like that. Um, but it's a, it's an ongoing process, you know, at, at any given time I can, probably say probably have three or four other models that would be interesting that if I had, you know, ludicrous amounts of money to go off and start <laughs> But That's laser true. focus right now on one thing. Right. Right. No. And that's hard as an entrepreneur um, and somebody who's as curious as you too. Um, when did you both draw your first paycheck from the company? So technically we are not, um, mm. we're still not drawing paychecks. We get, uh, it's uh, there. It, the structure is is uh, LLC still. Oh, uh, okay. And I, I get meant to say like salary or income or whatever it might be. Right. You know, because as entrepreneurs, we're often reinvesting over and over and over. And so, you know, you um, needed physical space. You needed a facility. I'm assuming there were some very high upfront investments. Oh, you, yes. You and Gary had to make to get things rolling. So. Um, what was, what were, and it sounds like you both had families that are doing gymnastics, right? Like these are expensive things as parents to support. So what did you all do kind of behind the scenes to set up yourselves for, um, you know, probably like a decent period of time before you could replace the salaries you were getting at these large corporations? Right. So, you know, as you've mentioned, you know, anything in pharma is just expensive, um, so we used, we actually utilized, uh, Ben Franklin. So initially we looked around and tried to get space. Um, and of course no one was leasing space to us because they, you know, I don't know, whatever reason we weren't getting phone calls returned about leasing the space we needed. So, uh, Gary's other company was at Ben Franklin tech ventures. Um, so I looked at that and said, this is the perfect infrastructure that we need to get started. So it was, it was, that was our first space that we leased. And also Ben Franklin was a, um, you know, an incubator, right? So they um, gave us, uh, you know, uh, um, invested in the company through a loan. Uh, so they gave us loans to start up, but it was really, we started the company on $200,000 and also friends and family, right? So initially, both of us worked for free for quite a long time, um, just living off of savings. And that's, you know, that's another thing as an entrepreneur, for this highly technical space, you really have to have your savings built up 
or at least a kind of safety net off that. And our spouses worked and things like that. So there, there were definitely lean times. Um, but I would say 20, 2016, before we really started kind of pulling, before we were able to to have anything substantial to, to survive. You know, we're still not we're still not paid at the levels that you would uh, atypical. When you say pharma CEO, we're drawing yeah. <laughs> down those <laughs> kinds of salaries. Borla's <laughs> making a little bit more money than you are, huh? Yes, yes. <laughs> the, um, you know, as you said, everything goes back into the company right now. So everything, you know, all extra funds and cash is is put right back in into the company to ensure it's stable for success, so that we growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, like staying with the early days for you and Gary, was it kind of an obvious split in terms of who does what and um, task wise to grow the company? I don't know his background um, as as I do yours. So is it vastly different than yours? And it's yeah, they're overlapped also. Uh, so he's more from he's directly from the pharma industry uh, and, and formulations development, things like that. So. A lot of our formulations development, the the way it was split was, you know, um, writing the initial, uh, you know, we'll say the formularies, um, deciding what we would use for for components, um, those sorts of things went to Gary as the the final decision maker, and then me for the business setup for the kind of setting up pricing, putting models together for how we want to do things, but. So having said that, but when it comes or came to actually the manufacturing, the building of the clean room, running the process, so, you know, doing the fills, doing all the um, the experimental work that we had to do, both of us have a pretty deep lab background, running instruments and things like that. We both, we both uh, were, that fell pretty much equally. Uh, both of us had a pretty good, you know, lab We'll say lab technique, lab capability. We look at data, and to this day, we still both will jump into look on the lab side. Um, you know, we're big enough now; we don't have to go to the clean room, thankfully. So I stepped out of the clean room first, <laughs> so I don't go in there all that often. Um, and he really goes in there more as a, to check on the people and make sure that things are are operating the way they should be. But both of us are no longer in the direct processing of routine things uh, we're more we're definitely more you know as we've grown as we've as the company's matured we're able to step back in a way and, and focus more on rather than the tactical stuff we're more on the strategic side now so it's uh and you know that started occurring back in 20 2017 right? okay mm-hmm. what were some of the early hires that you and gary decided to make yeah so you know, early on, we looked for new college grads with chemistry background. Um, you know, I think as we've gotten more experience, we've gone through a lot of of hiring and firing. Um, there's a it's more of a, a very specific independence and familiarity and confidence level that we're looking for. Where you know, and I would say, you know, sometimes big pharma doesn't always work out. Um, they do things very differently there. Uh, we we need you know a lot more attention to certain things um, because it's not taken care of for you. Um, so it's a different type of person from big pharma. You know, we used to look at you know chemists. I would say 
chemists, you know, uh, pharmacy technicians used to be our, our target and still is, still is. But really, it's people who are used to operating in a team environment, um, are used to having some responsibility, what we'll say, have had to do a variety of things. You know, we're still small, so you still have to be able to do a variety of things and not just be siloed in a single place. But, you know, that's overall. But again, the kind of what we're looking for in a QC person is different from what we're looking for in an operator versus diff someone different than like a QA person. So, you know, they're, they're definitely niche things that we're still looking for. Sure. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing as you grow the company? Yeah. You know, the biggest one is, is um, the biggest one is capital. Uh, I mean, every small business always says that, but again, for pharma, the kinds of capital we need usually outstrip what, <laughs> what most people are thinking when they say, you know, when you go to your economic development team and they say, Oh, we've got, you know, a hundred thousand dollars that we can, we can put to something. And, and, you know, in pharma, that is, you know, that's one of our tanks. <laughs> so it doesn't, it helps. And early on that d those kinds of things definitely helps. But now we're in the, you know, when we talk about clinical trials, we talk about vaccine development or just a new therapy development, you know, it's, you rapidly get into the millions of dollars for need, right? It tens of millions for need. Um, so that's the, the capital side. I think the other side is the, you know, for people. So one of the challenges is, like I say, we have a very specific type of person that we're looking for. And again, with some nuances, depending on what group they're going into, but it, that can be challenging to find. I think we get lots of applicants for things, but uh, we have to go, you know, we go through those and try to find the right type of person for what for what the application is, what, what we want them to do. But then also, I'm always, you know, I mentioned part of what I like to do is build build things, build teams and construct a team. And Gary and I are trying to construct a team such that we are no longer needed in the team. That's that's how we look at it, right? We're we're not trying to be, we don't have to make, we don't want to make every decision every single part of the day, right? Uh, we want to focus on strategic things. So we're looking for people who can be grown if they're not there, but can be grown into that kind of person or that kind of employee. Um, so really it's more of the team oriented and, and we've had a pretty, pretty good luck, um, looking at the way the team is now. Um, we've had pretty good, pretty good at it. Um, but really it's just getting everyone's confidence, you know, the ability to learn, the ability to, to develop a confidence and speak with knowledge about whatever it is you're interacting with, you know, um, those are key, key traits that we're looking for, that I look for. You know, when we're 100 people, 200 people, that we can't manage each person individually. You know, yes. Now, so with a small right. Yeah. How big is your team now? We are at uh, 14 people right now. Okay, that's great. So, You're doing a lot of work with 14 people. We do. Most of our customers are amazed we can do what we do. We're we're rather thin right now. Um, but you know, again, we go back to the capital when we need to do a building expansion. So. Those sorts of things kind of control the team, but we do do a lot with the team that we have. Um, and I think as we keep adding various, we'll say, components to the team, we'll be able to do even more. And, I, you know, my thinking is, well, it's far better to have 
to be under-resourced than to be over-resourced and looking for something for people to do. There's no end. Yes, yes, for, uh, yes. You know, uh, activities for anyone to have to have to do. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's like the classic chicken and egg convo for any scaling business, right? What yes. do you do first, land the business or hire the people, you know? Exactly. You can't get business yeah. without the people. Right. You know? And and in, in pharma, and that's, I think that's one of the success stories with us is we've had customers that walk in and they are from the industry. They look around and they say, wow, you two did, this is awesome, you know, for, yeah, it doesn't look fancy and shiny and all that great stuff, right? But they're, you know, they're knowledgeable people who have been in the industry for 50, 60 years, and they're, you know, walk around going, this is awesome what you guys have done and your ability to do it, and the data looks great. Um, And that, that I think goes a long way to, as we're, as we you know, try to recruit and find customers, when they see that, they know that, okay, it may not look the way some of the other guys look, but we're going to get a safe, reliable, and, you know, uh, solid product out of these guys. Um, and we do that regularly. So the, the customers continually come back to us, which is, is awesome. This is my last business question, then I want to switch gears and talk about the a product that you're working on. Um, how are you marketing USSF and are you and Gary using your personal brands to build the brand of the business or is it, you know, more the other way around that you're really just pushing the USSF brand out there? Right. So, so this, it's kind of, it's almost like a, the, last year and this year, we started actually, you know, developing more of the website, doing a little bit more marketing and things like that. Up till now, it's pretty much been, I would say, the person. When you say the personal brand, it's almost like our professional brand. So our customers came from, and even our first customers, they came from interactions we had with in our business lives, where we knew people who needed someone to make clinical materials for them, and we mentioned, "Hey, we happen to have one of we we have this facility now. Would you like to use us?" Um, and I would say up until very recently, um, the contracts, the fills and things like that uh, from the investigational drug side, those were like our personal brand. Now, a lot of our products, because of the nature of the way some of them are registered, we aren't allowed to advertise or make any claims for what the product does. So we actually have to, everyone who uses it is knows what the product can already do and is kind of word of mouth. It gets around. Um, so we don't have sales people out there selling the product, um, which is pretty good. We are beginning to, to uh, look at ways we can actually do a lot more marketing to, to drive the sales on that side. Um, but that's almost a self, that's the botanical that we refer to. You know, that's almost a, a the people who need it, want it, and and know about it, they have sought us out to, the MDs have sought us out to find it and, and use it. For our contracts work, you know, a lot of that is, um, we'll say, you know, pharma, pharmaceutical development and uh, is a very small field. And the manufacturing side aspect is, is there a limited number of customer, of uh, facilities that can do certain things at certain size and scales. and 
So the people involved in that development and in the ramping and things like that uh, all talk amongst themselves. So, so we get referred to by, we get, we get a lot of referrals. Um, and then, um, you know, we may not necessarily close a deal with one customer because, you know, again, because of our size, but when that customer is talking to one of their colleagues, they'll say, Oh yeah, you guys are small. Check, check you. Reach out to them. Yeah. So it's, I would say most of it hinged has hinged up to this point on our own personal brand and the context we had before, because we, you know, they knew us, we know them, they know what we can produce. Um, but more and more we're, we're expanding into the kind of more of a conventional marketing and advertising of, of our capabilities world. If you've been thinking to yourself, I wish I had a personal brand that was easy to articulate and really captured all that I do, then look no further. Check out www.thebrandid.com today and sign up for a brand strategy session. We work with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, coaches, consultants, authors, and speakers all the time. And we have been doing this for nearly 15 years. We love the work we do, and we would be so honored to help you uncover and define your personal brand. So check out www.thebrandid.com today and sign up for your brand discovery session. You mentioned the botanical earlier too, uh, before we were recording. What what does that botanical remedy treat? It is used primarily for pain management. Okay. Um, again, because of limitations, I can't say what <laughs> I can't make any claims on it, but it's used in pain management. Uh, it's a very old um, formulation, um, actually used around actually used around the world as we've done more and more research on it and it's you know it's 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 been used continually um to 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 help people with various i'll say various ailments that they they used it went away for a little while and like i said we brought it brought it back and have just made it in a you know created a much more robust safer and safer product for people to use out out there so it's not an opioid, essentially. No, but no, it no. Could, but it, but no. it could compete with, right? If an opioid's used for pain management, okay, yes, interesting. There's many overlapping, overlapping applications. Um, and then also, uh, we talked about this again pre-show, but I was reading about it. You're developing an oral version of the COVID nineteen vaccine, and um, would love for you to explain how that potentially is different than the current vaccine options out there. I know you're early in the process. Um, you've done stage, stage one, phase one um, safety trials on it. So, um, you know, elaborate on what you can. Yeah, so this one I could probably talk a lot more about. <laughs> okay. But uh, it's pretty exciting. So, you know, I mentioned, you know, one of the big things about business, right, is you all, there's always opportunity. And this is what Gary and I are constantly doing is looking for what are the opportunities? Where can we go? Um, how do we grow uh, with, with whatever assets we, we have at the, at the time? USF was originally founded, as I mentioned, to provide um, clinical materials for a vaccine project that, uh, that my co-founder had on another, um, another project. And in 2019, we were trying to, 
you know, things were getting shut down more and more. And we were trying to say, okay, this project will probably be put on hold. Perhaps, though, we can apply the same vaccine platform technology to COVID-19. And we did. And so this is an oral platform. And the person, um, in order to vaccinate, you it, you drink it just like you would um, a little quaff of a sip of water. It's only about 10 mils. We call it the swish and swallow. You, you drink it. You open the bottle. You drink it. Um, swish it around in your mouth and then swallow. And that is sufficient. And what you're going to do is coat your mucosal membrane, your mucosal, the mucosal membranes in your mouth. There's a lot of um, lymphoid tissue in your mouth and in your gut. And this vaccine trains your body through those gut-associated lymphoid lymphoid tissues um, to, we'll say, identify a, a target disease, which is pretty awesome. So that means you don't have to take a shot. You don't have to, um, you know, get stabbed. You don't have to keep anything refrigerated. It's a pretty awesome vaccine the way we've set it up. So you swallow this and then X number of days later, you will be uh, considered uh, vaccinated is, is, and, and we can control what that target is. The target is a protein based. It's not an mRNA. Um, it's stable at room temperature and higher. We have long, we have stability data, you know, where we've, you know, at one point we heated it up and then still checked it to see if it was stable. It was fine. Um, it doesn't taste like anything. So we did some taste tests on some placebos and then there was nothing. And it's easy. We'll say it's, it's a lot lower risk to manufacture, a lot lower risk uh, based on our clinical trial to, um, to having adverse events. So, you know, no major adverse events were reported. You know, the biggest one, in our, again, in our clinical trial in New Zealand, our phase one safety trial, um, we vaccinated people um, and then we monitored them, we'll say a lot more than you would normally because it was for safety. Um, and we didn't find anything that stood out, but we, we were able to generate some data that showed a little bit of efficacy out of it. Um, one of the biggest challenges with with the with COVID nineteen was no one can find what's called a correlate um, or no one no correlate's been identified. And one of our what's a correlate? A correlate would be when you're doing vaccine work. Uh, there's a lot of experimental work you do, and typically you want to say, is there an indicator in the physiology or an indicator in the um, in some titer that a titer uh, so some some um, some sample, some human sample that mm -hmm. we can get mm -hmm. uh, that will confirm whether this is working against that disease target or not. We can start to correlate. And we may have identified one. So this is one of the first ones where we actually have something that that may have may work towards helping, you know, with future vaccines or other vaccines down the road, helping people identify this without having to, you know, only put it in people prior to knowing if it's going to work. Um, so yeah, so this oral vaccine is um, now going, it's ready to go into phase two. Um, and there's where we actually look at, you know, a full-blown efficacy study from, you know, a couple hundred people all the way up to a thousand people or, or more, right? Um, and I believe the data was good enough from that phase one 
that, you know, I, I'm very confident that oral vaccine delivery for certain diseases is the way of the future, you know, and certain, I mean, a very wide array. There are a lot of things that we can target with this vaccine platform, not just um, not just COVID, but also, you know, some of the, as we were discussing, some of the diseases that are listed on the pediatric schedule, right? So for anyone listening, you know, the pediatric schedule of, of vaccinations that you have to receive, you know, at birth or, or when you're young, um, that list only grows, right? As we find more and more things that are out there and we want to make people, keep people safe, the list keeps growing. There, that's a lot of needles for, <laughs> for many of us. I'm scared of needles. I, I hate needles. And what this vaccine does is it allows, you know, as a mom or a parent, you don't have to watch your child get stabbed repeatedly with these different vaccines. You would say, have the child take this, you know, in a nice, you know, something that they swallow or something that, you know, you can, you can, you know, apply you know, with an applicator for really young kids. And it's the whole experience is a lot better. And that's why we named this new, the platform, we call it the kinder vaccine platform because it's, it's kinder, it's a kinder way to vaccinate people. Um, and you can find it on www.kinder.com. Uh, Q-I-N-D-R is how we spell kinder. Um, yep. And it's really, it's really cool and a really versatile technology. You know, we've, we've done various experiments with it, um, looking at, you know, existing vaccines that were expired and applying the technology and looking at their efficacy. And sure enough, they were working at full strength again. Looking at, um, you know, is it just for viruses? No, we can look at other types of, of disease that are caused by different things. Is it just for, um, you know, what did I want to say? Is it just an initial vaccine? It actually works, you know, the way we look at it and the way the data indicates it, it would work. It works well with boosters. So as a booster vaccine, um, you know, one of the other great features about this is because it's bucosal and oral, right? The manufacturer of it is a lot easier. So it's not that it's, you know, you can do it unsafely or uncleanly or anything like that. It's that the components needed are not as rare and difficult to find and manufacture as they are for injectable vaccines. It means the facility can be set up with without needing completely sterile facilities everywhere, which means you can it's easier to produce a lot of it fast or or change to some to making some other version of the vaccine a little bit easier. Um, and then finally, you know, one of the big things, and again, most people don't care about this when they're selecting their vaccine, but this is important for for uh, people involved in preventing, um, you know, preventing um, uh, uh, the spread of virus, the, the, the preventing pandemics and things like that, is the shedding. There's, you know, you, you're shedding constantly all all the things that that are in your nose and mouth, right? And one of the things that mucosal vaccines have been shown to cut down on is the amount of shedding. So it helps to reduce because of the nature of how this works and where it positions the antibodies. It provides an additional layer of protection for for not, you know, for, for reducing your viral shedding, your viral load um, in your mucosal system, which means when you walk in a room, there's not 
as large a cloud of of various disease things that are that are that can get someone else sick. And then on top of that, because it was a safety study, we had to follow people for a year. I was wondering that what the yeah. time period was. Okay, so we actually are still showing effective antibodies at twelve months, right? So this is hugely different than what was seen for some of the other vaccines that it, that are have been approved. Um, and obviously, you know, I mean, oh, go ahead. Sorry, just a question. Um, when you, you know, meaning that people who have gotten this in your phase one have not contracted COVID in a full year compared to people who, ha- well, I know you're not comparing people um, from a scientific standpoint, but I per- you know, personally know so many people that were vaccinated and then had COVID you know, weeks later, months later, it didn't really seem to be st- stopping the virus. Right. The The purpose, so the actual purpose of a vaccine is to lessen the effect of of whatever the disease target is. So, yeah, so it would be great if it, presented, if it prevented acquiring the vaccine, right? Prevented infection, like a true full-blown full infection. Um, but that's not actually the purpose of the vaccines. The purpose of the vaccines is just to, is more to reduce the effects to a level that your body can handle without, you know, without severe, severe reaction or, or death, right? Um, so what we did in our, in our clinical trial, we compared the number of people, because of we did this trial in New Zealand, so we compared the number of people who had the normal vaccines, we took was a population of people that took pretty much the normal vaccines, and then our clinical population uh, uh, 45 people took our vaccine and we studied, followed them over a year. So in that, we compared the rough percentages of the people who received the vaccine, the, the other vaccines and still contracted COVID and the people in our uh, clinical trial who contracted COVID. And there was a significant reduction in, in the probability of getting COVID after taking our vaccine. It doesn't, people still catch it or still get it, but um, it's a it's not to the same uh, intensity. Um, well, one, it wasn't the same level, but two, it wasn't the same intensity. The other aspect of that is most of the people when we go through the clinical trial notes didn't even know they had COVID. <laughs> so it was one of the, you know, they were very mild. Uh, so those, those are good things. And again, the phase two is where that where we can really make definitive statements about that. Right. But it, it, is there a control group in the phase one? Because what I'm wondering as you're sharing this is, how do you know that it was the vaccine that they took that made the outbreak more mild versus just the fact that the variant's a lot less intense? Actually, so we looked at it relative to the variant. The variant that was most intense was Omicron. So we... we we showed a, we'll say, it's hard to, there's a lot in this, but but we're up against Omicron for the variety of this. And so that was a very intense infection for most people. So we know that that was what it was. Um, as far as a, a control group, um, for ethical reasons, again, in the middle of a pandemic, the the medical board um, did not allow us to have a control, a control group, right? Everyone needed access or everyone needed uh, vaccination or anyone who wanted vaccination had to be allowed to get uh, vaccination. Um, 
And and so so right going going forward and in future studies when you look at COVID now because of just the the vaccinations that are out or the things that are out there they're almost it is almost isn't possible to find people we'll, we'll say in the U.S. primarily or or Western uh, or in 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 uh, we'll say Europe um, that have not been exposed to COVID so they probably have pretty much most of the people that would be involved in the clinical studies in, in those two regions will have the antibodies in their blood, uh, either from exposure or from, um, or from vaccination, multiple sets of vaccination. So it's, it's making the actual clinical trial set up actually kind of really fun, actually. And our clinical trial, the phase two, and this is where we're looking at efficacy, um, it's going to be, it's global, right? And because you have COVID is seasonal. So it's very similar to flu. So our clinical sites will come online as, you know, if we can, as it, as, uh, as whatever the current strain is, starts traveling around the world. Um, so that includes Asia, US, Europe, uh, Africa, um, kind of is, is the, the way it, it um, kind of rotates through the, through the, the world in South America. Um, okay. Which usually matches up with two of those. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah. It's, yeah. Seasonal. it's it's interesting when you start looking at the, the path, various different types of uh, disease take as they circulate through the world. Right. Yeah. No, that is very fascinating. Um, I have per- personally read about a lot of adverse side effects from some of the mainstream, we'll call them um, vaccines. I doesn't appear that a lot of that information is getting out to the public, and I'm wondering how your product um, is different. You explained that there's no mRNA in it, and it might be too early to answer that question any further without doing that phase one trial of yours. Um, but I am—I know personally, I try to share what I learn and read with people who are not in the loop about about some of the adverse side effects of the of the other vaccines so what can you share doctor about um either your vaccine or just from what you've observed these last three years you know being in the pharma industry yourself that might be different than what we've seen historically around new vaccines being released to the public right i can speak primarily to mine um you know in our in our phase one the the safety study there were no adverse events associated with the, well, there was no adverse events associated with the, with the, with the, the, the vaccine. Uh, again, because it's oral, the greatest discomfort we'd expect would be, you know, uh, gastrointestinal challenges. Um, and we did not have those. Uh, so from that aspect, it's safe without, you know, and just, just reading adverse events, we did not have any, reported adverse events that were similar to what is out there in the, from the already approved vaccines. You know, I, I, you know, we'll, we'll say it's one of the, the nature of the mRNA vaccine and ours is a protein based vaccine again. So uh, it's operating differently than the way the mRNA vac- vaccines work. Um, from, you know, the, the nature of the mRNA vaccines, I think, from from being able to generate an API, which is you know what we consider the target, the the targeted uh, 
the thing that you use to target the the disease. Um, you know, their ability to to generate that initial API and get get something that you can start formulating with was was really fast and incredible. I think what we're seeing now is there's still a lot of you know um, so, still a lot of work to be done and how to how to fine tune that process and get it get those vaccines so that the experience is a lot lot better for the, for the patient. Um, and, and people, they, you know, the industry for MRA is going that route. Um, as a whole, you mean? As a, as a whole. I think, that, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think the people manufacturing, there's a lot of money being poured into mRNA vaccines, which probably without COVID would not have been been applied to them. Um, you know, but I do think a lot of the companies that are out there that, that, kind of started up with the mRNA technology. You know, I was just reading a couple of articles uh, on the finance finances side, and right there, many of them are trying to find now what next. And it it is a challenge to continue developing down that line. You know, well, vaccine, vaccines are generally challenging to develop anyway. But those companies also are looking to say, well, there's we have this mRNA technology, but what else is there and and how can we keep building upon it um and with that i think i think the experience may become better kind of switching back to ours you know our protein base is more conventional so we don't have a lot of the that risk isn't there for us um and because of the simplicity with how we construct the oral vaccine the ability to get it into people quickly let's say once once the target pro the target once the disease target that we're aiming for has been identified right whether mnr so you have to do that first no matter what kind of vaccine it is you have to identify what is the target that you need um and then in our case you know there's there's we would grow this up in in you know e coli or cho or whatever whatever the system is um and then we go through a purification. In mRNA, you still have to figure out how to duplicate it, but also duplicate it and get it into a sequence that that is works for the body, right? Um, so both of them, all of them require some level of work and risk uh, and time. The biggest thing for all of these is time. And I think mRNA, what they were looking for was how do we get how do we get to this this stage where we've we've got the disease target. Um, known and can can generate sequences really fast. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is that is that there's still a lot of other work that has to go into to fixing that so that the patient experience is more pleasant or less risky. Yeah, yeah, interesting. This is a fascinating conversation that uh, can last for for hours. Yes. Um, and a, just a complex world in general. How do you balance running a business, staying up to date on the science and the research of the you know the products and things like that that you're producing, um, and and family life? Well, I have high school daughters, so from the family life side, they usually don't want anything to do with me. Actually, one of them's a college freshman, so so they usually don't want anything to do with me. But you know, running around their sports and everything else like that. So back in my corporate corporate days with the other companies, I traveled the world 
a lot. Uh, and every time I'd retire, return home, the girls were a little larger or different or, you know, so, so I learned fairly quickly. And with this endeavor, when it's time to go watch gymnastics or time to go watch a cycling meet or pole vaulting or whatever, then I will go do that. Uh, there's always more work to be done. Having said that, you know, I have my iPad and my, my smartphone with me most of the time. So if there's actual work that needs to be done or I need to review something or things like that or prove something, then that's always, you know, there's not a lot of lag time. I think there's, you know, one of the things that Gary and I did when we set up this company is we look at it as because we have so few people and we never want to have a huge number of people, um, there's a lot that can be done through automation and through using modern tools, modern business business tools. And I think we've embraced those. So things that allow us to, to be more efficient with what we do with not always having to be on site for certain positions, um, we, we take advantage of those whenever, whenever possible. Um, and then, you know, staying up on the different topics that are out there, because of the nature of what we do, I think we're always being told and we we still get told, you know, well, you know, in our case, you know, the the everyone else is doing what you tried, what you're doing, or other people tried what you're doing and they failed. Why are you guys so much better? Well, and, you know, we have bits of the science that the other people weren't applying or weren't implying the same, weren't applying the same way we were applying it. In order to have that discussion, though, we've got to read, right? We read whenever there is something that comes out, we we know. We do consulting with a lot of other companies. And part of that, you know, consulting and talking with other experts is, you know, they're bouncing ideas off of us. We're bouncing ideas off of them. Or not ideas, maybe thoughts and information. And, you know, people will say, hey, you should go check this article out. Or a colleague will say, hey, you know, someone just published this. I think it works well with what you guys are up to. You should go check it out. So it's just the willingness to go read and, you know, periodically do a Google search and say, hey, I haven't heard on this. What's what's going on out there? Um, that's the most important thing. You know, sometimes when you're sitting out on your back patio or or um, or headed somewhere, right, it's just sit back and read a nice article. You know, um, I think I just bought myself the, you know, the history of disease of, of vaccines and virology. I hadn't read the full book or the volume cover to cover yet. So I read it. <laughs> it's just one of those, okay, it's like reading. But I, I just did that. Um, you know, is it, there's definitely, you have to maintain, and Gary and I are pretty, push each other pretty, pretty hard on, dude, you should go to the concert. Don't, don't, there's, you got to have work life balance you know, outside of it. Um, I'm a pilot also. So one of the things I do, I used to go off and just rent an airplane and go fly somewhere for a couple hours, right? Just just to, you know, when you're flying, you're kind of, that's, I'm focused on that. So I don't, I'm not thinking about, you know, the 30 other things for the business that have to be done, or having to call a supplier to get something. Uh, so that's how you you that's how I un un not unwind, but at least uh, kind of force my attention to turn to other things, so that I'm not feeling overwhelmed all the time when I get back into into this. Yeah, uh, yeah, it gives your brain some time to recharge and 
pushes you into other parts of your brain too, where um, creativity may may be unleashed, right? Versus right. just constantly um, being focused on the problem, which which is very easy to do when you're an owner right. and an operator. And the other part of that is, you know, I go back to building the right team. So yes. So I trust our, when we give them a task to do something or have them write something, we trust them that it's going to be a good product, a good work product, whatever comes out of it. Um, and it will require minimal input on our side. Um, and you have to build, you know, you have to find one, the right people, but then you have to build again, that capability and work with them to develop that capability so that you can get to a point where while you're overseeing it, the, the people, even when you're not looking over their shoulder, are able to perform as you you expect them to do. But I think that's a lot of entrepreneurs make find it really difficult and challenging to make that transition from being, you know, tiny startup mode into more of a, you know, into the let's say the back end of a ramp mode where you know, you have to trust your people to do certain things while you focus on bigger picture or um, bigger picture and strategic type type decisions and, and yeah. thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can't go but anywhere you gotta be, down yeah. in the weeds. <laughs> nope, you can't. I was just going to say, say that in different words. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, where is the best place for people to learn more about you and learn about your company? Oh, yeah. So two, two big, two, the two cool companies are USSF. Um, so it'll be www.ussfgmp.com. And then, you know, for more of the vaccine stuff, it's, there's two different websites. One is kinder, you know, kynder.com and also vaxform, V-A-X-F-O-R-M.com. And both of those have a lot on more on the vaccine uh, as well as all the other, you know, interesting things that that we do and, and help people out with. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to The Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends. Friends.